Hi, welcome to the very first episode of the Laser Podcast. We're still working out a few bugs, so hopefully you stick around with us through this recording and it'll get better each time. This week we're talking about ancient techniques for gold coating materials, a new form of carbon nanostructure that you might not have heard of, and we're discussing a debate about how scientific data is published. Welcome to Laser. This is a material science podcast. That's all you have to say. That's all you have? That's all. What's your name? Oh. What does laser stand for? These oh. are the basics. Okay, all right. Uh, the basics. That's what I want to know. Okay. No? Yeah, <laughs> laser is... How to. do you say it, though? Let's agree. I think science we, and engineering are rad. Yeah, yeah, let's agree. Science and engineering are rad. I we agree. should get some sound effects, like... Like a shred guitar. Okay. Yeah. A radical... Yeah. Okay, so this is Laser. This is a, a science podcast with a materials science and materials physics perspective. Uh, I am Cameron Copas. We have. Uh, My name's Emily. You can call me the Slinky. <laughs> and <laughs> we have the Slinky. And the Slinky. Emily and the Slinky. The Slinkies. Okay, and we're all <laughs> materials science graduate students. Okay, the first paper. We want to talk about is let's see who who wants to introduce this paper. I think Alex, you this want one? to. Yeah. Okay. All right. You know, what's the title? This is this is a cool paper. It's called "Ready: Ancient Mercury-Based Plating Methods: Combined Use of Surface Analytical Techniques for the Study of Manufacturing Process and Degradation Phenomena." Who did this? We were talking about this earlier, and I forgot about it already. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, seems of well, how do you know which was the main person? The first person. The first person. Right. Gabriel Maria Ingo from Torino, Italy, and his group Her. called the Ingo Group. Her. Yeah, Maria. Gab- but the Gabrielle first one's Gabriel. Gabriel. Gabriel Maria. I think Maria is her first name. I think that's Maria. how that works. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how that works. I realized we're the only people with the first name first. Yeah. And Torino, Italy. What's the institution? I don't know. Instituto uh, Perlo Studio di De. Materiali Nanostructure, right? Yeah, Nanostructure Material Studio Institute. Oh, Institute of of Material Nanostructural Studies, probably. Where do you see that? It's in the National Research Consortium. Okay. All right, so they're from Milan. A research group from Milan. Okay. What they're looking at is they looked at um, old methods of plating on old metals, like silver plating, gold plating, um, of non-precious metals, something that's either precious or looks precious in old times, about 2,000 years ago. So from a technological point of view, the aim of these workmen over 2,000 years ago was to make precious metal coatings as thin and as adherent as possible. So this was ordered to save expense, 
save expensive metals and improve the resistance to wear caused by the continued use and circulation. All right, so that was a quote from the paper. That was a quote from the paper, right. Well, what, what kind of stuff is this used on? So it's used on a lot of the stuff we have now is like artistic artifa- artistic things, so artifacts, I guess they yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. Um, things much. that can be used in decor, that were used as decorative decorations or It also, gifts. I know it mentions the... It mentions the potential for use for fraud too. Right. Uh, they said Faking they, it. yeah, <laughs> many many people used so they made counterfeit coins and they would plate it. Right. To or to make a statue with like solid gold coins and statues and goblets and. Yeah, so they would use metal plating, which I guess makes it's economical as long as you're not using it for forgery. They still do that with uh, jewelry. Yeah. All the time. And I think it says even one. One government used yeah. it on purpose. I think mean, there, Ro- there were some Roman coin that and, was cut in, covered in here. And no one knew. No one knew. No one knew. So they, they outline three different uh, ancient types of gilding or uh, silvering. One is uh, depletion gilding, where, as I understand it, what they basically do is they make an object out of a an alloy of some kind. Uh, let's say if you have, like, copper or copper-gold alloy, and you want to have a gold-plated uh, surface. So what they'll do is they basically will, will heat it up, and the, you can by heating it up, you'll form a, a copper oxide around the outside, right? right? That's, that's what I gather out of this, because they say... They then use pickling solutions such as salts and organic organic compounds to etch away oxidized copper, and then you leave behind silver or gold. Yeah. Right? So they yeah they get all the I guess it's it's a material that already has the I'm guessing the material that already has gold and silver in it with the copper, and then you just remove the copper, and then you right. can just polish it down to look like it's or yeah to make so it look you, like it's pure gold or silver right. on top. And you still have the alloy underneath it, right. the mixed up, the, that's only partially gold. So that's one type. The other type is uh, what they call macro or inverse segregation, um, which is basically where they have another another alloy. Um, let's say the one one example is uh, these coins from that were minted by the Carthaginians. Am I saying that properly? Carthaginians in Carthaginians in North Africa uh, around 240 BC, and they made these coins. The surface of these coins are arsenic and timony um, enriched, and basically what they do is they they ther- it says they thermally push by thermally pushing arsenic and timony con- containing the copper core to the external region of the cast, they can create a silvered or surface that's got a different alloy composition than the rest of it. I think that's too complicated. That's too complicated? That's too complicated. I think they just... Wait, did they... I think they, they just take... The old technique was they had something and they heated it up and cooled it different ways to make certain elements come out towards the surface and others stay inside more quickly. Or yeah, So certain things would come out to the surface more quickly and then it would look like there was more of that on the surface. Well, you couldn't tell. We, we were the key thing we were discussing was the was the diffusion constant. Right, and yeah, that's so, affected by certain temperatures, and that'll vary depending on the material yeah, what, that you want to move. Right. Right. Well, so that's how you could selectively have one element present come forth over the other. They they wouldn't have had these diffusion constants then though, and a diffusion trial and error though. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I like I said, you uh, you probably have some. They make some object out of an alloy, and then they heated it up. 
and then they found out if you heat it up again, it looks different than when you originally molded it or made it at, forged at the hot right. temperature. And they probably started to think, okay, well, for some reason, if you keep heating it and cooling it, one of the ingredients we have starts to accumulate on the surface. And they just figured they just figured it out. They know when you have these two things together and you heat it up, you get one of those things on the surface somehow. But, I mean, we were trying to look at it at more in a more modern lens, I would imagine. That's true, yeah. So, And then their third technique, I think that's, this one's really cool. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, mercury silvering and gilding. So, they right. make a paste, pretty much. They take gold or silver leaf, so just, I guess they, they would take gold or silver and hammer it really thin. That's probably still how we make leaf. I don't mm-hmm. actually know. Do probably you, extrude probably it. Calendaring. Or <laughs> calendaring. Yes, that's right. It's, well, it's rolling, rolling. basically. So they take it and they roll it between big wheels to make a real thin foil. Same, I guess, the same way that they make a aluminum foil today. And like cop- similar to copper wire, you're basically just you're crushing it to the shape you want. Re- extrusion is uh, different. Extrusion is different? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does extrusion work? Extrusion is, the way they make wire and stuff like that, is yeah. they have a, a nozzle. Um, so, like... You know, the, a frosting nozzle yeah. on the end of a frosting thing? So yeah. you have a big vat of real, of hot or not even hot material on one end. You just push it through that nozzle. And the yeah. nozzle is harder than the material, so it just comes out the wire. And the rate that they pull it at, the temperature that both sides are at, will change how the diameter and the, the structure of the wire. So how strong is things like that. Same thing. You do the same thing with hard Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to think of it that way. This, this mercury gilding technique, they take these gold or these precious metal foils and they make a mercury amalgam so i guess they mix mercury liquid at room state with some gold particles or silver particles whatever they want to glue and they use that as a glue they just paint a real thin layer on onto the material and then put the foil on and then when you heat it up a little bit the mercury will evaporate some of the mercury will leave will leave the the film it'll evaporate through the gold foil and then you just have it's like glued on there it's Almost the same way we would use glue now, I guess. Yeah. It's just their glue was mercury instead of polymers, which I think is pretty cool. But the reason we found this paper in the first place was this this crazy this, this claim that they make. Zany idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what do they say? Let's see. Um, the hereafter described results confirm the analytical capabilities of the surface techniques and evidence the high level of competence reached by the artists and craftsmen of these ancient periods who produce objects of an artistic quality that could not be bettered in ancient times and has not yet been reached in moderns. So, <laughs> when I read this, I was trying to pick a pick at some things that, that we could use to say, where, where do you get that, that claim? Right. So, the first idea that I had was, sure, yeah, they had some cool ways to get some nice, thin metal films on objects, but it was probably filthy. In terms at like at an atomic contamination level, there's probably tons of other things in it: carbon compounds and dust and all kinds of things. There's that. That's just what I would imagine. Um, then on top of that, they didn't have the ability to do epitaph. Yeah, it wasn't atomically smooth. But when you're coding something, it doesn't really matter. I think this stuff was just for looks. Yes. They weren't using it as I don't know. They weren't. They probably weren't using it for scientific equipment. Or they, electronic no. equipment. Yeah. No, <laughs> Who knows? For all their decorative artifacts. 
whatnot, unless there are high dollar microscopes buried underneath the earth somewhere. Well, we yeah. <laughs> so it's obvious to me that neither of you know anything about the ancient aliens that were here two thousand in Atlantis years ago. Oh, that, no, no, okay. the ones that were in Egypt and Samaria. <laughs> they come to my backyard occasionally. <laughs> okay, so Sorry. these old. They're saying that these old techniques are better than what we can modern right techniques. Now. Yeah, I don't know. What about I electroplating? I don't know that this is an actual scientific claim, though. I think it doesn't, This at least this sentence doesn't belong in the paper, almost. Right. It, it sounds more like, yeah, this is great. I mean, it's still, the, these gold coatings are still alive today. Yeah. They're still surviving today. These methods would, would still be good today. But yeah, they're yeah, good, don't but they're not ones. the best. Yeah. So I, I almost feel like it's just something that they were using to justify why, why they spent all the money and time. But I think that there are other justifications, though. Right. I mean, they, they have, most of these are, like, super rare historic artifacts. They're thousands of years old, and you, we need to know what they did to make these, what they're made of, and you need to be able to check the conservation status, which they mention later, but it's just a passing reference. Yeah. This makes it sound like the reason they're studying it is to find out how they did it so that we can reproduce it. Although I mean, in the title it does say they studied the... De- that part of it was to study degradation phenomena, so... Okay. Alright, maybe but this... It's just that this it, paragraph stood out more to me because it's so ridiculous. Someone yeah, thought right, they for, should add that in at the last minute before it went to publishing. Even if even if they, they, they look at all this and they... You know, they, they can look at defects and imagine how they might propagate over time and how this changes phase and all that over over time it, it doesn't change the fact that you don't actually know what happened to it it's really really old and on top of that like how is that going to help us in today's stuff that we do with metals i think it, it's it might not help us advance our metals but it's important to study the historic artifacts oh yeah no i so it's I agree with that yeah it's history and we do want to know how to preserve them so you don't want to preserve it using a different method because then it's not going to be uh, authentic right Oh no! I totally think it's it's really great to know exactly how advanced groups of people were throughout history. A lot of ancient advancements, which are really amazing, that people came up with them, and it's important to map, or I think so, to map out like the whole exponential growth thing. And the more you know about the past, the more accurate you, you can actually see whether or not that's true, yeah. which exposes a lot of other weird alien possibilities of the future. I see what you did there. Aliens. I have a few other problems with this paper, though. The the characterization methods they used, they are... Some of them sound like destructive. Yeah, some of them are destructive. So they they did... Uh, they used scanning electron microscopy. Yeah, that's so that one is not. No, that one's not destructive. That's not destructive. That's if it's already metal coated, you don't have to do anything. So just they shoot the electron beam at it, mm-hmm. and then they read the ones that come back. Right. Just like using light, it's of it, of course it puts some energy on, so it's a little bit destructive, but it's mm-hmm. not going to really change any of the properties or take off any of the atoms. Um, and with that, what they else? can use XPS, the X-ray spectroscopy, in built into the SEM. And that's also non-destructive. All they do for that is that that lets them tell exactly what elements are in the sample at the spot that they're looking at in the microscope. Uh, and all that just happens because of the electron beam is already hitting it, so it sh- the material is shooting off x-rays. Um, the one technique that I have a problem with is the OJ. So when they did, they did OJ, which is usually, it's okay, it's only a little bit destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, with OJ, that one is you 
shoot in a high-energy high electron, and then that excites the electrons in the material so much that they fly off, and we just measure the energy of the electrons that fly off of the sample. It tells you, it tells you about the core electrons. It tells right. you about the core electrons, yeah, by, by removing them. Right. So that's a little bit destructive. It'll change mm-hmm. the bonding of the surface, but it's very accurate for this because it's, it tells you exactly the elements that are there, their bonding status, and it's useful for only the surface because it'll only read the first one atom on top right. of it. First of all, we're talking about ancient artifacts, so I don't want to remove anything. I don't want to damage anything. I just want to, I would just use the x-rays because it gives you almost the same information. Right. There are other techniques that can do it. Um, they could have done... Pixie would work. Pixie's yeah. more precise than the EDX. Wouldn't you have to scrape some off, though? No. No, Pixie is often for analyzing like that. They yeah. use it for this type of research, and I'm surprised they didn't use yeah. it at all. That's mm-hmm. like the most po- common application of Pixie, right. is to use it for things that... You can in a giant statue if you want <laughs> into yeah. the room and... Just put it in front of the particle accelerator. It doesn't have to be... Well, we let's do deal with that yeah. ancient spaceship you found and figure out. Yeah. How is it so light? <laughs> the one in your backyard? The one in the backyard of mine. That's not <laughs> Okay, so we talked about problems. We talked about what they did. What kind what did we let's see. They analyzed some cool things. They analyzed this uh, golden altar of the Holy Ambrosio in Milan. So it's supposedly, according to them, the most important work of art made by a goldsmith. So it's a wooden box with gold filigree on silver plates around the, the wood, and it was uh, donated, or it was put in a church, and apparently it's been there for 2,000 years, almost. Almost 2,000 years. And so, I mean, they got to analyze some really cool... They look touch that? Yeah. It's, it's neat that, <laughs> that this, these things were available for analysis. Yeah. Look at, look at this I picture. feel like they could have I been mean, more I mean, we careful. can't talk about it. You can't show the way this picture sounds, because... It would only have what, a sound. What picture? Could, this one right here. See that? That's a pretty. That's a pretty smooth layer on the top. That is a very. Okay, I can't so see the are... scale. It looks. The picture's small, but it looks like it's micron. Yes. Yeah. The bar says it's either one point zero or ten. Ten. I think it's ten <laughs> microns. So that's ten microns. So that's about the thickness of that layer. That layer is ten microns thick. That's pretty that's really uniform. Good. Yeah. I haven't seen. I haven't seen anything. I know. I have seen that. It was ten microns for S. Yeah. Like even that's, some of that's the good. That's TDM good. and films that yeah. I've seen that are like where the scale is like five nanometers. So it's it's amazingly good, but it's yeah. not better. And is this not still better, ten yeah. microns is is very big. A micron is right. ten right. to the minus I'm, six meters. So there's a right. hundred million microns in one meter. And you can still yeah, right? see obvious and there you know, are, defects in uh, a whole problem. Yes, there are. But so it's not it's still really good. Scale. <laughs> it's not better than current. Techniques. I'm trying to imagine this on a nanometer scale. So that's 10 microns. One of those little black defects that you see there near the interface of coding bulk is, is 100 nanometers. Is 100 nanometers. Yeah, 100 nanometers. Well, so 10 nanometers. Tens of nanometers. Right. Okay. Tens of nanometers to 100 nanometers. So, I mean, we we can grow we can grow films which are yes, which look like that. They look like that if the scale was 10 nanometers. So we'd have a conformal coverage that is that good at the scale of one of those tiny black defects. So yeah. completely incomparable in terms of how how thin and how uniform of a film we posit a compared to posit then their mercury paste. Yeah. I like the mercury paste. Mercury paste, paste and bare hands. I'd like to put it on my bagels. <laughs> I haven't had a bagel in a long time. I'm going to get a bagel today. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so I can't that think has in a been... Line. 
about 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like one talk. I guess we can right before game. this, we can talk about. Did you have something else you want to talk about in this? No, I'm forgiven. Okay, yeah. we could just mention some of the techniques we use today. We still, I, I think there are artists who still do gold leaf. Um, or I know that there are. There are still people who, who put on gold leaf. I mean, many people do it on right. their ceiling. You use something like glue instead of mercury. Probably a lot safer. Uh, now, I don't know if that'll last as long, but I'm sure you can you can get a very similar effect. Well, why don't, we do, why don't we do what we do with, like, the silver epoxies? Use some kind of, like, uh, alcoholic, like, benzene-type thing that evaporates and uh, just makes it's, nanoparticles. It's safer in almost every way to use something like a, a normal glue, yeah. Um, it's evaporate. Oh, that's what you meant by glue. When you said that, I was literally thinking that they have a very thin gold foil, and they just put some glue to stuck it. And did a lot of that. They sort of do. Tacky they do glue. Almost. Yeah. yeah. You can use, you probably use Mod Podge. Okay. <laughs> Everybody uses Mod Podge. I don't even know what this is yet, but... Mod Podge is what you use for... For gluing stuff. People do it to make, uh, there's a, a special technique, I, I can't remember the name of the technique, but you know, uh, often you like layer pictures on top of each other and you kind of see one picture that, uh, is, they're completely unrelated, but it makes big artistic uh, okay. modern art. It's like a clear glue. You can use yeah. it for scrapbooking. You can just put the pictures down it. and paint over it with Mod Podge. Oh, so you can use it to like coat things. I see, like, yeah, right. Coat. You, could, okay. you could glue your 3D puzzle together. I yeah. see. I see. I remember. So we're gonna make a sneak me a scepter for the troll, the troll king costume, right? And what we're gonna do is we're gonna make all these parts, put it together, and then glue them together, and then coat it in Mod Podge. Sure. That's what I was told. We we're gonna, right. and then paint it things. Yeah, yeah. You can put layer on the scepter, yeah. and then we're gonna get me a cape. We're gonna make Paul. We're gonna have a throne. We're gonna sit on the throne. And all of my little subjects won't do anything because I don't have a job. <laughs> I got nothing for them to do. <laughs> do and you have minions? Not yet. Like Despicable Me minion? No. Are you going to? I don't really need them. But I eat them. Don't you want them? You eat them. That's it. <laughs> they're they're so cute. Speaking right. of me minions, I bet they're full of hot gas. Oh, I, I, was, like, I was thinking they were um, living. They're probably they grubs. Be. They're radioactive. <laughs> radioactive. They're probably like grubs. Grubs are pretty much just full of liquid, and everything about them is like hydraulically actuated. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A lot of insects like that. The knee of a cricket. A cricket's knee is like that. It's like a hydraulic pocket. It's like full and causes the leg to extend because it's like full of liquid. That was a good fun fact today. Yeah. Fun fact yeah. today. Okay. And so I guess some of the, the other methods we use today, like for coding things, we use anodization. I wrote down a little list of yeah. these. Anodization. So that's just you take, I think you can only do it with metals. Or I know yeah. you can only do it with metals. But with that, you basically force an oxide or a nitride to form on the surface by making it the negative end of a, a battery immersed in some sort of liquid. So that's it's the I anode. Think it's the like yeah. That. So you you can do a lot of different things, and then what it happens is the materials on one end will get deposited on the other. So it's very similar to electroplating that we also do. But you just do that one in salt. And with that, you have a, a cathode and an anode in a salt bath, or in a bath of whatever you want to deposit. In some cases, and you, it just electrically plates it atom by atom. Um, we can also do CVD, chemical vapor deposition. With that solutions, liquid solutions that you let dry or deposit on there, or physical vapor deposition stuff like sputtering, right. where you have a, a it's every, plasma system, it forms sputter, a plasma and they just every land. sputter system I've ever seen is you have a you basically ionize an incoming gas like a, like a argon or something like that, and and then you have the electron and they the ele- fly the electrodes and, and they fly towards which their their opposite charge, which will be the target. And then they knock off material, and the material just sprays out the side. 
copper and deposit that. Okay. So that's that's some of the things we can do. And then of course we have paint and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Paint. There's always paint. Don't you forget just, about... Just gold paint, spray paint, gold spray paint. Don't spray forget paint. about uh, MOC and uh, ALD. I think those are, are just more complicated versions of CBD. Yeah, yeah, of they CBD. The, key, the key here is that there we have things that go on in vacuum. They Processes go on in vacuum. only so work in a vacuum. They are very low contamination. They we control tremendously small amounts of... You can deposit an atom at a time, or yeah. one layer of atoms, layer of at, a atoms at a time. Exactly that. So you could stop it if you got one layer of atoms thick, and that's perfect. Right. So that I think that that is the key to saying that that they're claiming just a little, just a little out there. <laughs> the paper, the research is good. Yeah. It's it's interesting to learn about these historic artifacts and how the the techniques that they used and to see how well preserved these things are. Okay. It's not that great. It's a pretty. Alrighty. Alright. It's it's too. is gold colored and ancient me beer mm. i'm gonna have a beer <laughs> okay I have beer that you made yeah i will drink one cider those. you don't have beer you just have cider uh i think i'm out of that okay i'll have cider. cider oh wow what am i right what's happening there i should have been ready for Oh, nothing. I'm just recording the sounds. Oh, of you, of you pouring the, the Foley artistry. And then the the full at the end of it will have to be the click and the the like the the frosty sound. That's what you missed out on, like the beer commercials. It sounds or cold. The, the sound of you drinking, gulping it. Going it. Down your- All right. Well, somebody somebody come up with a with a transition. <laughs> uh. this one i don't know do i do you am i semi the carbon expert yeah you're the carbon nanotube expert you've been doing research on it for years i don't know what i'm doing i just mix the things together and sometimes it works okay uh i don't i don't say about it i remember connell telling me two days that i was in his carbon nanomaterials class that uh (laughs) the class is fun he said he said uh you know 10 years ago the carbon nanotube conventions or a conference, a seminar, or whatever, yeah. symposium. Probably. was full, full, so many people. You had, you'd be on a waiting list in the past, like, three years. Nobody's going to deal with that. Is it because it's just, like, it's narrowing down, or is it because well, funding's moving on? Pe- things? People are getting growing impatient with um, carbon materials, and it, although they have all these great aspirations for wonderful properties and uses, actually use material is 
more challenging than anybody's willing to handle. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of it is a hype problem. Yeah. When Richard Smalley's group at Rice University, when they released their when they released their findings, they released them dramatically in the news. So that's why mm-hmm. you've seen carbon nanotubes in the news every right. day. Like, carbon nanotubes! Even though we haven't done anything with it. Carbon <laughs> materials, carbon this, carbon that. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people who actually have asked me, like, oh, what are you going to school for now? Like, oh, I'm studying materials. And they're like, oh, like carbon, like carbon nanotubes and graphene? That's going to be great. I'm like, uh... Yeah. Actually, almost none of us really study it. Like, very few people are studying that. Now. They used to, though. And they should study it, because it really is useful. It's just that... It could be. The problem was, when you release the tiniest little breakthrough, and you say, now we're going to have a space elevator, then everybody <laughs> will give you $10 million right then, mm-hmm. but you can't spend your $10 million immediately. So every research group, they just had so much money that they just wasted it. And what they really needed was to do the research slowly over time and not waste. So it just yeah. brought too many people in. It's, it was the, the buzz topic. And it, I, th- I yeah. think the, all the buzz about it, the media press, and really I blame Richard Smalley's group. Yeah. They... Let's keep emphasizing that. Yes. I, I'm <laughs> I blame... sorry. I, I don't blame Richard Smalley himself. He was... The visionary. He was the, yeah, visionary. But I think that it could have been handled more responsibly, is all. If it were done more slowly and carefully, we would be probably be further with carbon nanotubes than we are, and the funding wouldn't be drying up for it. Yeah, which I uh, know firsthand it totally is. If people are concerned, uh, high con- uh, big concern with carbon is carbon nano research is if you ever want to use it for anything besides electronics, uh, people get really paranoid about toxicity. If you want to put it in the human body, or but it's on a nano scale, won't that go in your cells and cause them to rupture? Well, no. It- <laughs> Maybe. It does we haven't though. tried. No one's let us, but. Yeah. Electronics. Yeah. That's mostly what I'm interested in. Anything that, one of the reasons why that got me interested in is because I thought, okay, well, so potential for very, very low power biocompatible circuits. Great. The only issue is they aren't necessarily biocompatible. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to talk about that. Bio, that's a, that will have to be an episode on its own. Yeah, yeah, we'll that's have to a talk about that. Last week, somebody released uh, ionic conductor materials that are flexible and transparent, so we'll have to talk about that next time. Mm. Next time on yeah. Lasers. Yeah, or no. But so, today's yeah. uh, nanotopic is uh, the, from the MIT Technology Review about a new form of carbon stronger than graphene or diamond. I uh, broke a diamond once. Yeah, it's not yeah. that strong. <laughs> Don't give me that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um... The, diamonds. <clears throat> After that dramatic pause, the uh, the material is called carbine. Um, so a carbon nanotube is carbon. Carbon has four bonds. Right. And it's carbon in rings. So in in usually in pentene or hexane rings. Mostly. Or benzene rings. Uh, hexane. Hexane. Yeah. So six-sided rings of carbon. And then there are a bunch of these rings all bonded together and rolled into a tube. So a flat sheet of these hexane hexane carbon rings is graphene. Right. Rolled that tube, that flat sheet rolled up into a tube is a carbon nanotube. And this new form is carbene. So what it is is they describe, this is something that's been around for a while but not really looked into that much. And this one is 
a chain, a single chain of carbon atoms. So it's even smaller than a nanotube. Right. And because the carbon has four bonds, it can either create two double bonds on either side with the next carbon, or one single bond and then a triple bond with the other. So then it's it's a single, triple, a single, a triple, a single, a triple. And the more bonds there are, the stronger the chain is going to be. Right. So this group at... Where is this group? Uh, Leo... Rice, back at rice. Oh, back at rice. <laughs> All right. So Leo, Leo who? Uh, Mijili. Leo Mijili at rice. They. Um, well, obviously, rice does a lot of research carbon, and they yeah. found this material that seems to <clears throat> that is shown to have a greater stiffness than carbon nanotubes. Actually, double uh, doubling it. If you uh, what they have here for. Stiffness is four and a half times ten to the eighth newton meters kilogram for carbon nanotubes, but carbine is twice at ten to nine, twice so as stiff. Double the stiffness. Double the stiffness yeah. of carbon nanotubes. So, so that's pretty cool. Did they actually make this? I think it says they they just they just simulated it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a calculation From of first the properties. Principles. So it's computer simulation of it. They, right. Okay, so they did yeah. the physics to calculate yeah. this. Right. Some astronomers think they've seen it in space. Okay. But how do they see things like that in space? I know you can use. <laughs> they, they detected its signature. That's how we did things. We do things like figuring out what's in the sun. We know we can figure out from helium gas, from hydrogen gas, from a yeah. variety of single right. gases here in vacuum tubes what their emissions would be, and then figure out oh well, there's actually these nuclear reactions going on. We must have heavy hydrogen, heavy helium okay. type reactions going on. Maybe no one went out there and scooped up some of the sun and put it in a jar. <laughs> it's delicious on beef. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we should explain how they detect stuff like that. I mean, normally, I don't what, know how. normally they're each element has a characteristic absorption and emission spectra based on the electrons that it has and how much energy they have. Right. So certain atoms and certain elements will absorb light in certain frequencies and emit light in frequencies. And you can just see, you, you see very discrete bars. So you'll see, just a random example, you'll see... <coughs> A big, a bunch of extra light in your telescope that's at this particular wavelength, and you'll know that that is from one material. So that's how we identify a lot of materials in space, just by looking at them with the telescope. Um, it's also how we identify them in the, the microscopes too, like in the last segment. The EDX uses just it records the X-rays that come off when you hit it with electrons. Okay. So it's almost the same thing, just much further away. <laughs> so this, this article is just basically is just talking about like the dream of some material that we're able to calculate. It has potential for ridiculously stiff, but it also is flexible, more like DNA strands or other columns, a similar flexibility. Yeah, very flexible, but then very stiff and very strong right. in tension. So you can pull on this chain really hard, and it's not going to break. Right. So I guess this has really good implications, and it's a good advancement in that carbon nanotubes field. Right. If you can make it here. If you can make it, it's probably they they've said it's really hard, difficult to make. Uh, so I think this is a good first step, and I'm glad that I didn't see as much hype about this press release as we have about many of the other carbon nanotubes releases. Maybe the lesson was learned this time. Yeah, hopefully the lesson's been learned. What do you think about about possibilities for carbon materials to be used as actuators? This is something that really interests me. We'll talk about that later. Later time. We're at. at. I was actually, um, I I helped out a little bit with some discussion. 
Yeah. Show people you our do paper. it. Because a lot, yeah, a lot of these things I've seen talk about how either an ion transport or something along a carbon structure or an electrical stimulus can cause them to deform in a variety of ways, and they're very strong. This is great because if you string them all together, you could make make artificial muscles, which are way better than pneumatic pistons. Painted circuits, yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, we'll talk about that one okay. later. Okay, so <laughs> a, a good lead-in to the next segment is that this paper was published in... Well, we found this article on MIT Technology Review, which is a blog that covers papers published in the archive. I hope that our few remaining friends give up on trying to save us. I hope we come up with a fail-safe plot to piss off the dumb few that forgave us. I hope the fences we mended fall down beneath their own weight, and I hope we hang on past the last exit. I hope it's already too late. In the archive, as the physics archive, ARXIV, mm-hmm. is a almost journal. So normal papers are published in a journal, and they are sent out peer-reviewed and then sent back and revised, and then the journal has to publish it before anybody else gets to read it. But the Physics Archive, it was started by mathematicians and physicists, and it's a website for preprints. So when when you've written the paper and you haven't, it's not published yet, or sometimes even it is after it is published, but usually not, it's a preprint server. So you send your rough draft of it to this website, and they post it. So other scientists can read it and send you comments before it's published in a real journal. So it's completely free. Anybody can go to the website. It's arxiv.org. And if it's not arxiv.org, I'm going to sound real dumb, but I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yes, and uh, you, so you can read all of these scientific papers that normally are behind a paywall. You usually have to pay or, or have your school buy subscribe to that journal. And they are expensive if you don't have a subscription. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure many Each people site. writing reports have sadly come across. Do you want to buy? Yeah. Do you want to buy this? Uh, I've seen one in the thousands. I saw oh. a subscription. I saw a subscription in the thousands. There I are. forget which one it was. So what brought on me explaining that, um, first of all, because I love the, the archive. I think that it's awesome that pe- many people do that. Yeah, well, it's not, it's not for profit. It's just, a, it's just a website where physicists and mathematicians post papers. And you, uh, they have papers for everything, but it's mostly them. Right. And there are many people who don't even publish their papers after they put it in the archive. So it's it's kind of kind of great. It's almost becoming a journal, even though it's not really peer reviewed yet. So what what brought this on is this article I saw in the New York Times on their website. Uh, it was how to share scientific data, and it's by John Markoff. A article that describes how scientific data is shared and disseminated to the public. So right now, there's kind of a big problem with scientific data. Most of it is funded by governments or government agencies. So if you're doing medical research, you'll probably have uh, NIH. NIH funding, so National Institute of Health. Mm-hmm. And so that all, all that funding comes from, well, most of that funding comes from tax dollars that the government gives to them, and then they decide how they're going to spend that money. So they give research grants to researchers. So then the researchers take the money, do the research, and publish it in a journal, and then the people, the basically the American people paid for that paper, but they can't read the paper without paying for the article. And that's sort of what we were talking about. Most journals are behind paywalls. Right. And they say that this is for 
covering operation costs because they have to send it out to people and get the paper read and edited and updated and then they have to print it and they used to have to print them in paper so they have to print big books of lots of these scientific papers and mail them out but many journals now aren't even printed they're online only and you also have to yeah you can think about how much it costs to do the editing except the way the peer review system works is all of it is done for free somebody is appointed the editor of a journal an editor of a journal and this is usually a non-paid position and then these people somebody submits a paper to the journal to get published so this editor looks at it and says okay this is about carbon nanotubes i know some people who know about carbon nanotubes so they send the paper to those people and they read it and edit it and give their opinions for free send it back to the editor and the editor sends it to the author of the paper and they just go back and forth until it's done so all of this is done for free Basically, the only thing the journal does is start run the website. Right. In some cases, and charge for it. They charge $30 for one article. More than that. Sometimes hundreds of dollars for an, a single article or thousands of dollars for a year subscription to the papers published by the journal. And it's ridiculous, especially when you consider that the research coming from, or the research is funded by the government in the first place. So it wasn't funded by the, the journal. It's not like they have to recoup any costs in this case. <laughs> so that that's what's going on. Where does that money go? And when the journal collects money from they, people, do they just many of them just collect it. So it doesn't even go back to the scientists. No, the research it's a way to make money. or it's the a, organization. Seeing some many times that the journal, many journals are for profit. So the archive is this amazing example of a free way to get out your scientific data. Because there's, I mean, there's a lot of scientists that don't even like this. Yeah, you just post it on there. And at least the archive is has some sort of checks. You have to be a published scientist to post to the archive. Okay. So some random person can't just post their crazy theory about how the aliens aliens uh, aliens built the like, pyramids. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. So. <laughs> so it's not it's not a perfect peer review. The archive isn't a perfect peer review system, but not, the peer review system itself isn't perfect. So it it has a, a, a little bit of checks. No. Um, but I don't know. I, I do like that method anyway because I do that. If the public is paying for the knowledge, and knowledge should be available to public. Everyone should be able to learn about whatever they, whatever they want. They don't have to have to be a scientist at a university to have access to more knowledge. And really, when you're doing research, how often are you going to be reading through every single article in every single journal just for fun? And even worse is unless most you're of making these... this podcast with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one, one thing is that. Not everybody can read. They're hard to read. The general public has really no ability to read. The vast majority, if not almost all, scientists. Okay, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be available, because there are people who can read. So even if you graduate with your PhD in physics, and then you become an insurance adjuster, Mm -hmm. you can't read any more physics papers, because you don't go to school, your school isn't paying for it, unless you pay for it. Or even if you work for the government. If you're the government, I I know a, okay, this is a specific case, so it's not really important, but I do know somebody who worked for the or who did research for the forestry department and so they paid for the paper he published it and then a few years later they contacted him with questions and in talking to them they mentioned that they had to buy the paper from the journal even though they had specifically paid for the research and i mean he could have just sent it to them but right. technically that's not 
not what they're not what they're supposed to do. Yeah. So it's kind of ridiculous that these these organizations that are paying for the research they can't even get access for free to what comes out of it. And it's so it's, it's kind of a big debate in the scientific community. So you can't get rid of the peer review uh, system because it's it's worked for so long and it, it does make sure that the papers are have to have some academic rigor mm-hmm. and verifies that people aren't just making things up and yeah, to to a certain extent it does as do much that. as they can anyway. unless but you find something extremely foul people question it, but that's what's <clears throat> Yeah. What was, so what's that thing they posted on our walls? Langmuir's six sim- symptoms of pathological science. <laughs> yeah. What What is my favorite one of them? Is uh, your uh, when your res- one of them is when your results are only producible by you and only sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like all of my research. Yeah. So this this New York Times article talks about a few of the. It, I don't think it mentions the archive, um, but it does mention some of the new open access journals. So one of the most popular ones is PLOS, P-L-O-S, stands for Public Library of Science. And it's a primarily medical journal where they, it's completely free. It's open access. So anybody can go in and read the papers. The way the publication works, the way that they pay for it is that when you publish your paper, so if you want to publish your paper with PLOS, you will pay a fee of maybe $1,000. And that covers the cost of the running the web server and the switching back and forth with the editors, but it's not for profit. So they, they can still cover their costs and then have the data out for free. And this is becoming a, it's a, a well-respected journal, right? and they're, they're completely open access. And then there are some other things, especially in the medical field, which I guess we don't worry about too much, but there's a lot of, the same article discusses uh, publishing negative results. So if you're doing a a drug trial. So say you're you're some pharmaceutical company and you drew a drug trial oh, okay. with some some drug and you find out this doesn't do anything or it only has negative results. Right now you can choose whether or not to publish that. So you might not get your FDA approval, right. but you don't have to publish saying, "Oh, this chemical does something bad" or "This chemical doesn't do anything." So it's it's journals like PLOS are encouraging publishing negative results. Yeah, I think that would be good. It would prevent people from wasting their time by covering other research people have already done. The answers are already there. Why would you spend so many months and years sweating in a laboratory over something? It, there's almost a stigma against publishing negative results when there shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I'm about. I think I'm writing a paper with negative results. Pretty much saying that what you. Yeah. Well, this is the thing about it about science which makes it a bit different other worlds of how you share how successful you are is that when you do something and you say here's this thing i did and this is what i got and this is what it means and then later on you do something else that causes you to go back and look at what you did prior and say hey actually i think i was wrong for these reasons Mm -hmm. this doesn't degrade your reputation because we know that you do good work because you did good enough work to realize that the work that you did prior had flaws in it so that type of thing but in our culture that type of thing is still very highly discouraged don't let anybody know that you were wrong ever right rather than saying here i was wrong for these reasons and that's what still makes me valuable as intellectual contributor to this subject yeah there there, there's websites like Retraction Watch right now, where it's a the blog that specifically watches for retra- journal retractions, and they make they to publicize it because sometimes you can retract a paper and it's not not a big thing. Like so, somebody might read the paper later and not know it's already been retracted. So this sort of blog makes it more hmm. out there. But at the same time, that kind of gives, makes it negative again because they're like, oh look, this pa- this guy's paper was retracted. Ha ha ha. 
So we need more things like uh, I heard about a website called PubPeer where it, it doesn't post the contents of paper, it just says here's this paper and it lets scientists post comments on it. So it, it almost makes it more, hopefully, more positive way of po- posting correction and retractions than the, the traditional system. I don't know. How do you make comments that doesn't have content? You, make- you would have gotten the, the paper through your university system okay. and then it just says, this paper here, and write, write a comment. And everybody who's read that paper can write comments on yes. it. Okay. It's an yeah. interesting thought. So it's a good article and I think this uh, this debate needs to be a little more public right now it's kind of happening in the in the edges of the scientific community and not many people know about it even a lot of people in the scientific field don't know about it but open access retractions and publishing negative results are, are they should be a big deal and kind of yeah, need to reduce remove that stigma Right. Cool. You guys have anything else to say about that? No. That's no? A, I feel like we're all on this. I hope more and more people are more open about expressing their feelings about this situation yeah. so that we try to correct it. <laughs> all right. Well, okay, I guess we didn't really talk about lasers this week, but you could probably well, make will. lasers out of uh, out of carbon. Sure. Lasers. Can you? Lasers. You can you can make lasers can, out of something. That, I know that carbon a diode that lets light out. Carbon nanotubes love lasers. They, they do. Yes, they're they, excited. They by fluoresce lasers. and they they uh, put out heat and they uh, do all kinds of wonderful things uh, that we like to use for research. Can for. you create carbon nanotube structures with lasers? Yes. Yeah. You can. Yes. Many uh, pulsed laser laser ablation is, is a method of oh, making. Yeah, right. a, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. No, no, no. Making them. You can shoot, you synthesize? Yeah, you shoot things with a laser, and it makes carbon nanotube at the site where the yeah. laser hits. Okay, yeah. there. All right, that's what I'm yep. asking. Yeah. When you said laser ablation, I was thinking of a, a, a sputter caused oh, by yeah. the laser. Ablation. Not necessarily. You can reduce the energy to that. Okay. So I guess that is it. Is it? I don't know how to end this. Oh, we have a Twitter account. Do we do? We yes. have a Twitter? I don't know what Twitter is. <laughs> what is I the Twitter? Know, so I'm going to act like okay. I don't because I don't want to. Okay, all right. Well, the, cool the Twitter account is, is uh, twitter.com slash laser podcast. I think laser actually pod- let me let me double <laughs> check no, that. No, I Emery does not know. <laughs> I'm sure I know. He set all this up and he still doesn't yeah. know. The the website is uh, laserpodcast.com and I'm sure by the time I release this we'll have a Facebook account yeah. also. Anyway. Okay, yes, our Twitter account is at @laserpodcast. That's it. At That's Laser it. Podcast. Yep. All right. Wait, wait. How does that at laser? Po- Where's at the start Twitter. and the end of this? <laughs> uh, the, the the Twitter username is just l a s e r p o d c a s t. So laser podcast. But the at but sign is not in it. On Twitter, you refer to people as at. It's how you call. Like I would call you name. at Alex, or you would be at Troll King. <laughs> at Troll King. The troll King. Yeah. Good. All right. Nice. As long as we're all understanding. At Troll King. So you can send your nasty emails to at Troll King on Twitter. And, or that's not how Twitter works. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody that has that. Status. Good luck. Okay. Look what you've all right. done. That, that's all. What is the status? Take me down by the river
What's bringing on this next this next segment? Sec, segment blah 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 blah. Yeah. I met the aliens guy, <laughs> the History Channel oh, aliens. Really? Yeah, I I met him at a Monster Palooza in Los Angeles. What got, the I hell have, is Monster Palooza? Monster Palooza is a big is a big convention that they where they it's like tons of sculptors and there's like makeup artists. And oh, like, okay, all and, right. It's wild. They yeah. they do all these demonstrations, and uh, I got a really big fancy art book. And uh, but I saw him there. He was selling shirts that had like his face on it, like with the hair, it was completely what? completely zonked out. He's like aliens, man. He's <laughs> capitalizing on his own, like, yeah, his own meme. Oh, that's lame. The oh. funny thing is that when we saw him, when we saw him, he we walked over to the booth. They were like, "Hey, look!" I looked at the shirt. I was like, "Hey, look! It's the aliens guy." And some guy walks by and he goes, "Yeah, that guy's nuts." And we were like, huh? And we, we both looked, me and my girlfriend looked, and we saw him walking from behind it. We looked back at the picture on the shirt, and then we looked back, we're like, did the aliens, was that, was that him? Like, did the aliens guy just tell us that the aliens guy looks nuts? <laughs> it was. Awesome. It was. We found him later, it was him. That's really funny. We got pictures with him, it was good. Okay. Anyway. All right, well, let's start off with, uh, I am Ira Glass, and this week on This American Life. Uh, <laughs> I don't get that joke at all. You don't listen to NPR? No. Ira Glass is the host of This American Life. It's the most boring this show Life. ever. He was boring. on the Colbert Report once, and he seemed pretty charming in that. Yeah. This American Life. And what about, uh, City Council reminds you, do not think about the dog park. Do not look at the dog park. The dog park is not safe for people. The dog park is not safe for dogs. What happens at the dog park? Do not ask about the dog park. Your fridge has a safety latch. Yeah, the The cat cat. learned how to open it. You told me this is a cat. (laughs) Child safety. Top cat got to open Okay. But there's nothing in that fridge for the cat to get. No, he just wanted to go in. We have Negro Modelo with gold foil (laughs) over the... How did they make that gold? Mercury? (laughs) There's mercury paint on it. Yeah. It gives you that extra edge when you're drinking. Yeah. We have Four Peaks Peach, which is here. I love Four Peaks. Negro Modelo. Bottle or I don't know, what do you guys want? I will have a cider. A glass or I have a bottle. <laughs> I'll have a glass of okay. I have glass because I need oh. the one I have. There you go. Let's get you. How very fancy. This is my favorite type of pen because I always thought that those lines meant something. I don't think they do. Yeah, they let you see where the ink is. It's a measuring stick system? Sure. sure. It's a measuring system. The, the lines are there for distributing the ink. Oh, but this is a different type of top. Oh, that's how. Look at that. You just lift it. How did yeah. that work? Huh? Oh, was it on there even? Or did I not even close oh, it? Oh, it was. Okay. was. I was just explaining I gotcha. how to open it. Here, let's get the... <laughs> Demonstrating. The, the Arsenic, uh, SB is strontium, right? Yes. No, it is. No. Antimonide. No. Antimony. Yeah. Antimony. There we go. I'm still learning some of the periodic table. I've only had to access it recently. <laughs> That's what you get for having a physics undergraduate right? degree. Okay. No periodic table. They're coming. I started off and they're like, all these elements. I was like, I, I know nitrogen, oxygen, and then carbon, and that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> so, 
But now I can name, I can probably name 80% of the periodic table if you show me the symbol. <laughs> That's good. Aside from the, the lanthanides and the actinides. Yeah, those aren't. Not, not counting. I don't. Calorines. 